You're listening to the Transformative Podcast brought to you by the Research Center for the History of Transformations at the University of Vienna. Hello, I'm Dr. Shengpeng, a historian at the Research Center for the History of Transformations, University of Vienna. Today, we will have a conversation on the roles of non-governmental organizations in China's economic transformations in the 1980s and 1990s. Our speaker today is our research colleague, Dr. Federico Pacetti. Dr. Pacetti finished his PhD at Hong Kong University and has done extensive research both in China as well as in the United States. Welcome, Dr. Pacetti. Thank you for having me. Can you give us a general political and economic historical background of your research? Yes, sure. So as you said, I received my PhD from the University of Hong Kong with a dissertation exploring the assistance that many American institutions and also international financial institutions provided to China during the 1980s. As we all know, in the late 1970s, China started to open up and implementing a reform process of its economy launched by famously Deng Xiaoping in 1978. And I look at how the United States, but not only the U.S. government, but also some of the most prominent American NGOs, some of whom we will discuss today, assisted this reform and opening up to integrate China into the international economic system of the 1980s. I also look at non-U.S. organizations such as the World Bank, which was the multilateral financial institution, I do cover the whole 1980s, and I stopped with 1992, which is considering current literature a turning point in China's economic history, which is when Deng Xiaoping toured south of China and fully committed to continue the reform process after the polls in the aftermath of the Tiananmen tragedy. Uh, so aside from the World Bank, as you mentioned, what are the other NGOs you have studied I look at mostly three or four NGOs in my book manuscript. One is the most famous, I should say, NGOs that works predominantly on China in the United States, which is called the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, which was formed in the 1960s to precisely deal with China. Um, it was formed in the 1960s at the time when China was more close to the outside world. And there was a lot of curiosity already going on in the United States. So people, mostly in universities, but also in the business sector, they want to know more about China. And they were all hoping that China someday would have opened its system up so that people could have had a chance to travel to China, find out more about the country, help the Chinese setting up exchange programs and so forth. An organization such as the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations was working exclusively on China, as I said. But I look at others. I look at older and broader NGOs, such as the uh, Ford Foundation or the Rockefeller Foundation, NGOs that were promoting global development, were promoting cultural exchanges, and were promoting a sort of cultural internationalism among people of the world. And the idea behind it was the more people are unified, the wealthier we will all be. And so there was always this desire to put their feet on China as soon as China was opening up. And indeed, one of the greatest achievements, I should say, of my research was how ready these NGOs were to capitalize on any possible Chinese opening. 
So well before China started to welcome and inviting those NGOs, there was no way for them to go to China other than by invitation. But well before 1978, those NGOs, they had done a lot of job already because they were all hoping that they could have come in a way. And even these broader NGOs that I was referring to, such as the Ford and Rockefeller Foundation, they weren't simply working with China, but once China opened up, they all of a sudden had a new partner with which implementing, as I said, studies. Those were not government-to-government relations. Those NGOs were sending the academics to China to study, let's say, the effect of China's special economic zones on China's development. Then the people who would be traveling to China would be spending two to three weeks there, and they would just mostly produce a report on the task goal that was assigned by the NGO. The report then would be published and then would be read by people of the NGOs or would just be made public so anyone could access this. So it was mostly about disseminating knowledge about a country that had been relatively, not completely, that's important to, to stress, relatively close especially to the Western world, for quite a long time. Uh, is there a specific case study or a specific interesting project that you could share with our audience? Uh, there are too many to mention. It's a very interesting feature of what I do to look at the periodization of these reports. When I went to the archives, I found a very interesting fact, which was as soon as China opened up in the late 1970s, the early reports that those NGOs produced or the early exchanges in which people of those NGOs would meet up with a Chinese entrepreneur or a local politician or a provincial party cadre, the early reports were all very positive and enthusiastic about the future of China. And the idea behind it was that China was implementing free market reforms, even though within a framework of an economy that remained fully centralized. But for many NGOs or for many of the people visiting China in the late 1970s and also in the early 1980s, that was enough to create a lot of optimism. Many of NGOs also harbored the desire that if China changed economically by introducing, for example, the contract responsibility, by open up trade, by allowing profits to be reinvested, this would have magically somehow also created a more fertile ground for political reforms. But beyond and next to optimism, there was also very detailed, grounded analysis these NGOs were doing about China or were doing about the study of the report that they were tasked to produce. Unlike, I should say, what the U.S. government was doing, those NGOs, they had the benefit to be able to play the long run. And therefore, I came across many reports that weren't fully enthusiastic about China, especially since the second half of the 1980s, China did continue to implement free market reforms, but things weren't going so well as many would hoping for. And so, for example, now I'm just reading something that Nicolas Lardy, who's a very famous expert on China's economy, reported to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations in 1987. There were a lot of expectations that millions of Chinese people would have bought American goods and consumer. But... The early growth of the early 1980s 
as Lardy reported, was predominantly driven by a once-for-all sources of growth, particularly in the era of agriculture. And this is just one of the observations that I came across made by Chan experts that are still very much alive today who realized that China's path towards a free market economy, if that was ever the goal, and we can also discuss about it, probably wasn't, but if that was the goal, it was a very long one to achieve. And still, for example, the National Committee on U.S.-China Relation noted in the late 1980s how it was not evident that the introduction of free market elements within the centralized economy would be necessarily creating positive aspects. For example, in the mid-1980s, the National Committee observed state-owned enterprises still account for more than 80% of the total economy of China. So their expectations were also being adjusted through their experiences on the ground. Yeah, I think they learned how to be flexible. When they went to China for the first time, they were hit by this desire that they were visiting a country that was in the midst of a brutal change. But then as they knew more, they also started to appreciate all the nuances. And they also understood something that was crucial for China, that China was implementing economic reforms in a very gradual manner. And indeed, we're using the term gradualism to describe the feature of Chinese economic reforms. China did not adopt a free market economy overnight. And the success, it is now known, of Chinese economic reform mostly lied in the gradual approach that was implemented with those reforms as well. So there was a lot of optimism to begin with, which was then transformed into a more sort of prudent stance. And I think this goes to the credit of NGOs. Somewhat they were able to learn from their past mistakes. They weren't simply reporting that everything was going well they were also reporting what, in their opinion, could have been done better, even though another point of my research is also to stress that the work that these NGOs were doing was not prescriptive. So they were not dictating China what to do and what not to do, alone the fact that China would not have permitted to be dictated what to do. So there was obviously some genuine interest that if China was going to change economically or politically, this could have also created benefits for the United States. But there was also some genuine and honest curiosity to know more, indeed, the word knowledge about a country that was close to the Western world for so long. So it was always work in progress and it was step-by-step approach, if you wish, not only on the side of China, but also on the side of NGOs to learn more about China and to link people together. So many NGOs must already have rich experiences in market economic reforms before they went into China, for example, the World Bank. So what was the role of the World Bank in China in this period? The World Bank was one of the most important consular of China during this period. Obviously, the World Bank was not an institution of the U.S. government, even though there is a big debate whether or not that was the case during the 1980s. But the World Bank, like those NGOs that I was referring to, also arrived in China at the beginning of the 1980s. China became a member of the World Bank in spring 1980, replacing Taiwan. And the job of the World Bank was 
obviously very different from the job of the cultural NGOs that I've been talking about previously. The job of the World Bank was purely about economic reforms in China. So what the World Bank did was two things. One, they started to produce studies and reports about the Chinese economy. And B, they started to lend money to China. In order to lend money to China, it was necessary to produce reports to China in which the World Bank also studied China's economic past. And quite surprisingly, I found in the archives that the World Bank was also quite able to praise some of the successes achieved during the socialist period. And so provided a quite honest assessment of what China had done well until 1980 and what China could and should have done to create a more efficient economy. The same reasoning that I was reporting about the other NGOs, the one about producing prescription reports, should be applied to the World Bank as well. The World Bank wasn't telling the Chinese what to do. The tone was never prescriptive. The tone was always, we think it would be beneficial if you do A, B, C, D. But it was never the same tone. For example, the World Bank used with other developing countries in the 1980s, mostly thinking about countries in Latin America. China was not in dire need to receive any structural adjustment because China hadn't been borrowing from Western countries or from Western banks in the 1970s. So the World Bank found a country that was mostly solid in macroeconomic condition. And the World Bank was producing reports that were being used to give China some money that China would be investing in some projects that were also co-sponsored by the World Bank. For example, the first loan the World Bank ever gave to China in 1981 was given for Chinese education. Loans were also given to Chinese agriculture, Chinese ports, Chinese industry. And the efforts behind this loan was to help China to achieve economic modernization as soon as possible. But as in the case of NGOs, it is always important to stress the fact that China's always remained the main agent of its own soil and of its own destiny. So the World Bank also took a very flexible, prudent approach with China. Many officials in the U.S. government at the time were also interested in development in China. Were they also working together with NGOs? Uh, that's a good question. It's hard to find sources from the U.S. side in which it would be evident that the U.S. government would be implementing a kind of China policy as a result of what NGOs were telling the U.S. government to do. And I suspect that the answer is no. In a nutshell, I just want to say that my research is about how China's integration to the global capitalist system of the 1980s was facilitated by those U.S. and international institutions. And by doing so, I also aim to provide an alternative story of the global economy of the 1980s, which wasn't simply about free market and privatization and marketization. I aim to show how the flexibility displayed by all these institution actors towards China, towards the fact that China was going to remain a socialist country with a planned economy was fine. So there was a sort of genuine desire on the side of these NGOs to be flexible. Thank you, Dr. Pacchetti, for speaking with us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be with you. You have been listening to the Transformative Podcast produced by Red Set in Vienna.